You're listening to Enchanted, a podcast on the history of magic, sorcery, and witchcraft. This week's episode is the last in our three-part series on the history of alchemy and the Philosopher's Stone. Each episode is designed to stand on its own, but if you want the whole story and you haven't listened to the last two episodes, you might want to pause here, go back, and give them a listen. With that, let's get on with the show. In his poem, Paradise Lost, 17th-century English poet John Milton describes a scene in which Satan lands on the sun. Unable to find the words to describe the brilliant light he sees, he compares it to the philosopher's stone of alchemy. There lands the fiend, a spot like which perhaps astronomer in the sun's lucent orb through his glazed optic tube yet never saw. The place he found beyond expression bright, compared with aught on earth, metal or stone. Not all parts like, but all alike informed with radiant light, as glowing iron with fire. If metal, part seemed gold, part silver clear. If stone, carbuncle most, or chrysolite, ruby or topaz. To the twelve that shone in Aaron's breastplate, and a stone besides imagined rather oft than elsewhere seen, that stone or like to that which here below philosophers in vain so long have sought, in vain, though by their powerful art they bind volatile Hermes, and call up unbound in various shapes old Proteus from the sea, drained through a limbeck to his native form. These lines echo the sentiment expressed in alchemist William Spurstow's 1666 treatise, The Spiritual Chemist, in which he speculates on the philosopher's stone. But I can scarce resolve myself whether the Philosopher's Stone, which is thus framed for our wonders, be not rather a speculation than an absolute reality, or an attempt assayed by many rather than an achievement attained by few or any. The modern era witnessed the scientific revolution and the separation of the scientific field into forms of more or less legitimate and illegitimate study. However, The demarcation between chemistry, physics, and alchemy has never been all that strong, even in our own time. From the 17th to the 20th century, some of the most serious scientific minds of their times had an abiding interest in alchemy, and more specifically, in the Philosopher's Stone and the idea of transmutation, of the refining of base metals such as lead into precious metals like silver and gold. The Philosopher's Stone is the highest achievement in alchemy. In addition to the power of transmutation, the stone is said to confer health and longevity to those who drink a potion made from it. The promise of eternal youth, health, life, and wealth, coupled with one of the greatest scientific riddles of all time, proved extremely tempting to some of the modern era's greatest scientists. And a young English wizard with a distinctive lightning scar. In the novel Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, or if you're American, like me, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, Harry, Ron, and Hermione find a giant tome, which Hermione calls a little light reading, with a section about the Philosopher's Stone, last known to be in the possession of the alchemist Nicholas Flamel, who had recently celebrated his 665th birthday. 
Before he was a character in the Harry Potter universe, Nicholas Flamel was a real historical person. He was a scribe, living in France and working at the turn of the 15th century. In 1368, he married his wife, Perenelle, a widow who brought her share of wealth from two prior marriages to the Flamel household, which gained a reputation for philanthropy and piety. Though his life is fairly well documented, Flamel appears to have had no tangible connection to alchemy during his lifetime. Flamel designed his own tombstone in 1410, which featured carvings of Christ, St. Peter, and St. Paul, and is recorded as having died in his 80s in 1418. In the 17th century, however, Nicholas Flamel was assigned a whole new career and some impressive achievements. More than two centuries after his death, rumors began to circulate that Flamel had discovered the elusive crowning achievement of alchemy, the Philosopher's Stone, and that he and Perenelle had become immortal through the elixir of life. The source of this rumor appears to have been a 1612 French treatise, translated into English in 1624 as Exposition of the Hieroglyphical Figures. This alchemical book credits Flamel with cracking the code of alchemical wisdom and begins with an account of Flamel attempting to decipher the texts of a 21-page book he had found and purchased. The exposition inspired a new generation of alchemists, writers, and artists, including Victor Hugo, who mentions Flamel several times in his 1831 novel, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. One of the most avid readers of the alchemical texts attributed to Flamel was the English scientist Sir Isaac Newton, who, in addition to his work on optics, mathematics, and gravitation, also took a tremendous interest in alchemy and the Philosopher's Stone. Newton's journals mention the Caduceus, the Dragons of Flamel, and suggests that he may have also been trying to discover the elusive Philosopher's Stone. During the Enlightenment, scientific authorities frequently worked to separate themselves from the superstition of ages past, presenting the rationality and simplicity of scientific observation as a counterpoint to the obscure complexity of the occultists. Paradoxically, the heyday of alchemical studies in Britain appears to have been not the Middle Ages or the Tudor period, but the late 17th century. The greatest collection of alchemical manuscripts ever assembled in England was gathered by Elias Ashmole between 1648 and 1692. Ashmole left his 620 volumes of manuscripts, including hundreds of works on alchemy, to Oxford University. The reputation of the late 17th century for shaking off the superstitions of magic, astrology, and alchemy springs from centuries of studies of the English Civil War, in which Parliament executed King Charles I for treason, and his son and heir was forced into exile. Popular historical sentiment has described the period of the Restoration, starting in 1660 when Charles II returned to England to be crowned king, as the moment when the English crown frowned on all things mystical, supernatural, magical, and politically radical. When Charles returned to England, however, he brought with him a famed French chemist and apothecary, Terre Lefebvre. 
Lefebvre's luggage was exempted from all import fees, barred against search, and quickly unloaded and whisked to St. James Palace, where he reassembled his laboratory. The royal family of England had returned with its own alchemist. And there's little evidence besides popular imagination that alchemy was otherwise forbidden or delegitimized in England under Charles II. The seats of alchemical experimentation in England were more likely to be the universities of Oxford and Cambridge than secret dungeon hideouts. And the majority of English alchemists probably looked more like Oxford Dons than Shakespeare's Prospero. The fact that Newton's writings were found to focus intensely on alchemy shouldn't be all that surprising. Of the estimated 10 million words in Newton's collected writings, roughly 1 million explicitly address alchemy. These writings, like most alchemical texts, focus particularly on the creation and properties of the philosopher's stone. And it seems quite probable that some of Newton's own experiments focused on the creation of the stone. In 1901, two British scientists working in Canada, Frederick Soddy and Ernest Rutherford, discovered radioactive thorium was converting itself into radium. The phenomenon the two scientists had observed was nuclear transmutation, a discovery that would later earn them both the Nobel Prize in chemistry. For Rutherford, this was a fortunate scientific discovery. For Soddy, it was the culmination of something more his fascination with alchemy. Teaching a course on the history of science, Saudi had once observed that the alchemistic period was the result of mental aberration that ran counter to the normal development of chemistry. Sometime in the spring of 1901, however, his perspective on alchemy shifted. The discovery of subatomic particles in 1897, combined with a recent study in astrophysics that posited that the light from stars suggested that heavy and light elements were continually evolving from one another within the stars, suggested the idea of alchemical transmutation to Saudi. He wrote a paper titled Alchemy and Chemistry that sought to rehabilitate alchemy's scientific reputation. In it, he refuted what he considered to be fraudulent medieval claims to transmutation, but he now insisted that there had always been true alchemists, the ancestors of modern scientists, whose intentions were never to defraud, but to discover. His conclusion established a place for alchemy in the modern scientific world. The constitution of matter is the province of chemistry. And little indeed can be known of this constitution until transmutation is accomplished. This is today, as it has always been, the real goal of the chemist. He had written this piece weeks or months before discovering thorium transmutation. On observing this phenomenon, Saudi's first thoughts ran to alchemy, while his partner cautioned him. Rutherford, this is transmutation. For Christ's sake, Saudi, don't call it transmutation. They'll have our heads off as alchemists. Rutherford was right to be nervous. When he and Saudi presented their findings at the annual meeting of the British Association for the Advancement of Science in 1903, 
No less eminent a scientist than Lord Kelvin attacked their theory of nuclear transmutation. Adding his voice to Kelvin's, Henry Armstrong, a professor of chemistry at the prestigious Central Technical College in London, declared that he was astonished at the feats of imagination he saw in Rutherford and Soddy's alchemical theory. Despite this criticism from two eminent scientists and their supporters, Rutherford and Soddy continued to establish the half-lives of radioactive elements, though much of the scientific community waited for further proof, even if transmutation seemed like a sound theory. When a flurry of letters, including some personal attacks, passed between the Kelvin-Armstrong camp and the Rutherford-Saudi camp, the controversy swung toward the newer alchemy of nuclear transmutation. Sadly, the dreams of centuries' worth of alchemists, that one day we might transmute base metals like lead into gold, would have to wait. But the foundation for how it might be done had been established. Because lead is stable, forcing the release of three protons would require a vast amount of energy, putting transmutation out of the reach of physicists in the early 20th century. Thanks to the atomic makeup of the two elements, it would, in fact, be easier to turn gold into lead. But half a century later, in 1951, American nuclear chemist Glenn Seaborg won the Nobel Prize for his contributions to a team that discovered no fewer than 10 transuranium elements, including plutonium, americium, and einsteinium. He even received the unusual honor of having an element, Seaborgium, named after him during his lifetime. In 1980, Seaborg used a particle accelerator to remove protons and neutrons from several thousand atoms of bismuth and succeeded in transmuting them into atoms of gold. The energy required for the experiment cost far more than the value of the microscopic amount of gold it created, but it was the first time that transmutation of a base metal into gold, one of the dreams of centuries of alchemists, had been observed and documented. late antiquity, the mysteries of alchemy and the hunt for the miraculous philosopher's stone have captured our imaginations. Medieval and early modern Europe proved fertile ground for alchemical texts, ideas, and legends to take hold. And while we may think of the Enlightenment as the height of rationality and the total rejection of all things magical, the relationship between science and magic continued as chemistry and alchemy remained entwined in the imaginations of men like Ashmole and Newton. Even in 20th century North America, when the field of chemistry was supposed to have left alchemy far behind, Frederick Soddy saw nuclear transmutation and thought first of the alchemists who'd come before him, waiting for someone to witness this very thing. Even as late as 1980, Chemists and physicists still couldn't help but think of alchemy. 
After all, there was no other scientific reason for Glenn Seaborg to see if he could, in fact, transform bismuth into gold. Except to see if centuries worth of alchemists were, in fact, onto something. But what if alchemy isn't about chemistry at all? Early in the 20th century, Swiss psychologist Carl Jung kept having the same recurring dream. In his dream, a new wing had appeared in his house. When he managed to gain access to this previously unknown corridor, he found an enormous library containing leather-bound folios of 15th and 16th century alchemical texts. In his waking life, Jung began to study alchemical writings and began to believe that the goal of the alchemist was not simply to transmute base metals into gold and silver, but to refine and redeem the material world itself, and by extension, humanity. In language hearkening back to the origins of alchemy in late antiquity, Jung wrote, The alchemical operations were real, only this reality was not physical but psychological. Alchemy represents the projection of a drama, both cosmic and spiritual, in laboratory terms. The opus magnum had two aims, the rescue of the human soul and the salvation of the cosmos. Jung had come full circle back to the ideas contained in the writings of Zosimus, the famed Gnostic alchemist of late Roman Alexandria. The end goal of alchemy was not just the refining of metals, but the refining of the human spirit into its purest form. What if alchemy was never about chemistry, about external material changes, but was instead always meant to be a roadmap for salvation? If so, then of all 20th century alchemists, Jung may have come the closest to discovering the true nature of the Philosopher's Stone. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to Enchanted wherever you listen and help spread the word by rating and reviewing Enchanted on Apple Podcasts. If you want to learn more about Isaac Newton's alchemical papers, we've put a link on the website to The Chemistry of Isaac Newton, a project by Indiana University to make Newton's alchemical manuscripts available online. This week's episode was produced by Thomas Ignatius and Corinne Wieben. Special thanks this week to Greg Adams, John Pippin, and Lenny Scovel for their voice talents, and to LibriVox for the recording of Paradise Lost. Original music this week is by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com. You can get in touch with us via email at enchantedpodcast at gmail.com, or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at enchantedpodcast, and on Twitter at enchantedpod. We'd like to give a special shout-out to our newest Patreon patrons, Susanna and Tommy. We appreciate your support, guys. Thank you. If you're interested in supporting us on Patreon, just $5 a month gives you access to exclusive bonus content, sneak previews of what's ahead, and early access to upcoming episodes. To learn more about the show or to become a supporter and help keep the magic going, 
please visit enchantedpodcast.net. I'm Corinne Wieben. Thank you for listening and stay enchanted.